0: Amen? Let me offer a word of prayer, and we'll turn to Esther chapter 8. Lord Jesus, if there is anyone here this morning who is doubting whether or not you are enough for them, would you convince them this morning? Give them full assurance that all the promises of God are yes and amen in you. Help them to know and to know that they know that eternal life is found in the Son. Lord, we pray for all those of, of struggling faith. Strengthen them and carry them, we ask. And we pray for all those afflicted with doubt. Give them full assurance. For the questioning, grant understanding. And for those entangled in disbelief and unbelief, O Father, would you give them compelling proof in the cross and the resurrection that belief is warranted and no one who believes in you, no one who trusts in you is ever put to shame. For those weary with this world, We say again, come quickly, Lord. Come quickly, bring your kingdom, bring perfect righteousness, bring everlasting life, bring fullness of joy to all those, Lord, who who sit in darkness, who sit in gloom, who sit in worry and fear and anxiety and, and need. Come quickly, Lord. Supply for every soul, we pray. Minister to every heart we ask. Make your word alive to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am a little bit surprised and and, uh, more than a little bit sad that we are almost near the end of the book of Esther. i have loved our time with God in his word in this book, and it has never seemed to me Uh, that a book of the Bible has been more applicable than the book of Esther has been in this season of life. I mean, just think about last week, the last two weeks. We have witnessed as a country some rather high-profile cases. We saw the case of Kyle Rittenhouse in Wisconsin, and we have heard the jury's verdict there. We witnessed the instructions that the judge gave. We saw the deliberations. We, again, have heard the verdict. And we have been sort of transported by national news down to Brunswick, Georgia in the trial of the murder of Ahmad Arbery. And we have heard the verdict come back from there. But we are reminded of the many shenanigans that went on that if they had been successful without video evidence would have led to a very different conclusion. And so we have been reminded of the sort of mixed nature of life in this world. That sometimes there's justice and that justice is mingled together with injustice. That sometimes there's righteousness but that righteousness comes blended together with unrighteousness. That all of the, the best virtues that we hope to see in this life at best are partial and sometimes fleeting. And we're reminded that the work, the work of justice, and righteousness and mercy is yet undone. It's not yet complete. I mean, I just mentioned the high profile cases. Never mind the many names we don't know, the many situations we don't know, the many households that are characterized not by love but by abuse, for example. Uh, The the many sort of interactions that neighbors have with one another that lead not to neighbor love, but lead to violence. The the, the many situations of workplace mistreatment, whether that's harassment of various sorts, whether that's the the unrighteous suppression of someone's wages, whether that's um, double dealing and back dealing in the boardroom. Examples of corporate and government malfeasance. I mean, the work of righteousness is full-time, because the work of unrighteousness, our enemy never sleeps. His work is full-time, too. And it brings us to consider, again, as we've been considering Esther, the very systemic nature of these things, that these are, these are not situations where if you could sort of catch one bad guy and do justice to that one bad guy, everything just gets better, There is an entire complex of laws and customs and ideas that that actually perpetuate unrighteousness in a fallen world. That's what it means for the world to be fallen. And as God's people, we have to take that fallen condition seriously. And we have to respond to it biblically. And we're going to see that in Esther chapter eight. What I want to suggest to you is Esther chapter eight gives us a process or model for overcoming systemic injustice, a process or model for overcoming systemic injustice. I don't mean by this that Esther chapter eight is like the blueprint that must be used in every situation, but I do think it gives us some some high level principles for helping us to recognize when in fact we're making progress in the cause of righteousness, when we're making progress in the cause of justice, when we are overcoming those systemic factors that are so true in a fallen world. Three points as we look at Esther 8. Three three things we want to look for in overcoming systemic injustice. Number one, there should be replacement and repair. There should be replacement and repair. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2 and verse 7. Number two, there should be revoking and rewriting. There should be the revoking or the rewriting of laws. We'll see that in verses 3 to 14. We'll spend the bulk of our time there since that's the most of the chapter. And then number three, there should be rejoicing and revival. There should be rejoicing and revival and revival. We'll see that in verses 15 to 17. If we had one main point to make this morning, it'd be this, that God's deliverance and justice will correct every crooked system and protect every righteous person. That God's deliverance and justice ultimately will correct every crooked system and protect every righteous person. Join me in Esther chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the the thing sings right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke The letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that night that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many, from the peoples of the country, declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The Lord bless his word. So the first thing we want to see in verses 1 and 2 and verse 7 is this idea of replace and repair, that that is essential to sort of correcting systemic injustice. Esther chapter 8 begins with the little phrase, On that day. Now, that day refers to the day that Esther had called out Haman, had confronted Haman for seeking to kill the Jews, and the day that the king had commanded that Haman be hung on a gallows that had been prepared for Mordecai. As we explained last week, punishing Haman was, as an individual was only the beginning of God's justice. There would be no justice, truly, If if Haman, the main bad guy in the story, was never punished, was never held accountable. But there will also not be any complete justice if the king's actions were limited to only punishing Haman. A systemic injustice requires a systemic solution. The next step in the systemic solution includes now replacing Haman and repairing the harm he's done. Verse 1, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. You remember that Haman was extremely wealthy. He he was so wealthy, in fact, he had offered a bribe to the king to to sort of give him permission to destroy the Jews. And you remember what the amount of that bribe was. It was was so vast that it almost equaled the entire empire's income from a year. He was extremely wealthy. Now, his estate becomes Esther's, and she replaces Haman as owner of that wealth. But not only that, look at verse 2. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther said, Mordecai, over the house of Haman. The the signet ring was a a symbol of the king's authority. If we want something sort of official, we go what? We go to the notary public, right? and they stamp it with their stamp and sign it. That's that's essentially the function of a signet ring. It it indicated that the thing was official, that it came actually from the king with the king's authority. That ring earlier had been given to Haman. Now, Mordecai replaces Haman in authority, wearing that ring, acting with with the power of the king behind him. So whether in wealth, Or in power, Esther and Mordecai completely replace Haman. (laughs) But that's God's deliverance. That's God making the tail the head and the head the tail. That's God saying that the first shall become last and the last shall become first. The righteous shall take the place of the wicked when God delivers his people. And not only is there replacement, but there's also repair. Notice now, it's more than just sort of a a, a personnel change. What we have here in verse 2 and 1 is a form of reparations, really. Haman had sought to harm Mordecai and Esther, though Haman didn't even know Esther was Jewish. But now, instead of Haman's descendants getting his estate, what happens to the estate? That estate is given to Mordecai and Esther. Now, why do I call this a, a form of sort of personal reparations? Well, look at verse 7. I think verse 7 gives us the, the why. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Why? because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. It was because Haman intended to harm the Jews that his estate now was given to these Jewish leaders as a kind of repair for the damage that he had intended. Given the victims here, the wealth of the oppressor was not a hiring decision. It was a a simple form of restitution designed to fix what Haman had broken. When I meditated on these verses, I couldn't help but think about two other verses. Psalm 23, verse 5, which says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's what David says about the Lord, his shepherd. That's what happens with Mordecai and Esther. A table is spread before them right in front of Haman, literally now and and figuratively, right in front of the enemy of the Jews. God prepares a table for his people. Listen, when God is your shepherd, you will feast right in front of those who want to do harm to you. The second verse I thought about is Psalm 110, verse 1. The psalmist says there, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that verse is a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. The Lord said to my Lord. In the New Testament, Luke 20, Hebrews chapter 1, the New Testament writers apply that verse to Jesus consistently. Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand until the Father makes all of his enemies his footstool, where he rests his feet. And the deliverance of God's people is connected to that promised reality of Jesus bringing all of his enemies beneath his feet. When Jesus defeats his enemies, he also defeats our enemies. Now, be careful here. Our enemies ain't always Jesus' enemies. I didn't say now that he's just going to defeat your enemies. Now, when he defeats his enemies, he will also defeat Our biggest enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I I love the way the Bible teaches us this. When Jesus crushes his enemies beneath his feet, he also crushes those same enemies beneath our feet. Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says, the the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He didn't say under his feet, which he will do, but under your feet, church, Satan will be crushed. Well, Revelation 3, verse 19, that letter to to the church there, which says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. These are enemies of the church. They say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. When Jesus crushes his enemy beneath his feet, He crushes them beneath our feet. He makes them to bow and to know that he loves us, that he loves his people. And Esther chapter 8 is like a giant index finger pointing forward to that victory that we have in Christ. And if we would overcome systemic injustice, we must be advocates, advocates now for replacing and repairing, wrong, replacing the wrongdoers in the system and repairing the harm that they do. Ultimately, all unjust systems will be destroyed when when Jesus comes in his perfect kingdom of righteousness, when all things are finally and fully put under his feet. But by God's grace now, we can see righteousness and justice in our lifetimes as we incrementally and imperfectly overcome systemic evil, as we advocate for righteousness. I mean, Esther chapter 8 is teaching us hope for today and tomorrow. Not the kind of escapism that only looks to Jesus' coming, but the kind of realism that looks to his coming and allows it to fuel us for justice and righteousness today. So if we're going to replace systems and know when that's really happening. One of the things we're going to see is replacement and repair. Here's the second thing we're going to see. So we'll spend the bulk of our time. We're going to see some revoking and some rewriting. Replacing and repairing are critical, but there's more to do if we really want to replace injustice with justice as a system. We also have to revoke the crooked laws, and we have to rewrite some new laws, some laws of justice. Verses three to eight, we see the effort to revoke the the crooked laws in Esther's day. Verse three, Esther pleased with the king on her knees and through tears She wants the king to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Now, the fact that Haman was dead did not mean that the Jews would live. A dead sinner does not equal a dead system. Systems have a life of their own. The law that was put in place by Haman was still on the books and still scheduled to take effect. So Esther first asked for the law of Haman to be revoked in verses 4 to 6. Apparently, she had not been called to come visit the king. The law that says that if you came to the king and he didn't grant you uh, entrance, that you could be put to death, she's still in danger of that law. But the work of justice isn't done. And so Esther is still leaning in. Verse 4, the king extends the royal scepter to her, gives her permission to come to him. Verse 5, she asks again for the order to be revoked. In verse 6, she continues to express, notice this now, she continues to express her solidarity with her people, the Jewish people. She asks, for how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? It's not enough for Esther to be spared. She must look out for her people too. And solidarity, note, beloved, solidarity is not something we express in one instance, in one event, and then we're done with it. If it's genuine solidarity then we take our stand with the suffering and the victimized and the oppressed, and we continue that stand with them, risking until the circumstances change. There's a whole lot of folks who've made solidarity a part of the tourism industry. They show up for the march, but they can't be found Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. There's a whole lot of folks who've turned solidarity into a performance art on social media but they don't bear any significant risks with those who are actually in danger. That's not what Esther's doing. She ain't tweeting and Instagramming, you know, little little selfies outside the king's palace. She is laying her head on the chopping block and risking her own life for the salvation of her people. She wants the law revoked, but notice in verse 8 there's a problem. Once an edict has been written and has the king's signet signet ring stamped on it. The king says here in the end of verse 8, that law cannot be revoked. So the king's word, the king's law in that day in that culture was final. The problem is he's already given his ring to Haman and Haman has already stamped those earlier laws and those laws then have to stand in some way. So sometimes we run into situations where we, we can't revoke a law, but that doesn't mean that we're done. Notice now, if the law can't be revoked, then some other laws need to be written, and that's what's happening in verses 9 to 14. They tell us now about the law that Mordecai writes. In verse 9, Mordecai called together the king's scribes. The verse tells us that it was the third month on the 23rd day. Now, Haman's law was to take effect on the 12th month on the 13th day. So basically, there's about eight and a half months between when Haman starts, or Mordecai starts to write this law, and and when Haman's law kicks into effect. It's about eight and a half to nine months' time. Now to us, that might sound like a long time. But remember, there's no internet. and no airplanes flying people around. There's no FedEx or UPS. Their postal service might be like ours. In the ancient world, this is not a long time. Remember, the law would need to be written, written in multiple languages, and then it would have to be spread by horseback over a region that covers 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia you got to cross oceans, you got to cross deserts, you got to go all kinds of places to get this law out in time. They're going to need that entire nine months. We're meant to feel a kind of urgency here. Because if the law is late, it's going to cost people's lives. Notice verse 10, Mordecai uses all the king's authority, he uses all the king's resources to get the law published and spread. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred for royal stud. He's going to now take all the authority that he can gather from secular Persia and use it in the cause of God's righteousness. And sometimes we think authority is the problem. But authority in and of itself is not the problem. God intends authority to be a blessing. That's why it's wired into all of creation. Parents with authority over children, various authority figures in the broader community, teachers and principals and what have you, human government. All of those are echoes of, of God's design to have an ordered world because in an ordered world, in a righteous world, we flourish. We are blessed. Authority's not the problem, but sinful humanity can and does abuse and misuse authority in ways that crush and curse. When Haman had authority, he used it for evil. Now the same authority in Mordecai's hands it's going to be used for righteousness. And this beloved, I think, is another indication that many of us as Christians should be considering careers in public service for the proper and good use of authority for the blessing of all people. Now notice the, the new law. Since they couldn't revoke the old law, they write a new law that would give the Jews a fighting chance. Look there with me in verses 11 to 12. It's a summary of the law. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their good on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month dar. So you see what the law includes, really four actions. Number one, they can gather in every city, freedom of assembly. Number two, to defend their lives. Number three, to destroy any armed force from any group or any province that attacked them. And number four, to plunder their goods, to take their goods as their own. Now, in righteousness, what Mordecai puts together really is a law of self-defense, This is not about vengeance. It's about protecting oneself against those who unrighteously attack them. So if verses 1 to 2 give us an example of a kind of personal reparations, then verses 11 and 12 gives an example of a kind of stand-your-ground law, of a kind of castle law. The law gave Jews the right to do to others who attacked them what the others were planning to do to them. And notice now the accountability of the law. When it came to protecting God's people, no one who attacked God's people could pretend to be innocent. Even women and children were held accountable for murderous action against the Jews. What Mordecai's new law does, really, is fully value every human life. It not only protects the lives of the Jews through self defense. But notice, it protects the lives of others who are innocent of attacking the Jews from any kind of vigilante vengeance from the Jews. Uh, the law, the lives that are in danger now with this life, is really the lives of those who are who in evil and wickedness are seeking to harm the Jews. And it's this law that protects. And it's this law that corrects the previous laws of injustice. Now, sometimes Christian people will ask a question something like this, or a series of questions like, why do God's people turn to secular law to protect themselves? Why why not just wait for God to supernaturally, you know, protect them? Can secular law be used to change anyone's heart? You heard that? law doesn't change anyone's heart. Well, certainly human laws cannot give a person a new heart like the one promised in the gospel. And I don't understand any Christians that ever have thought the passage of a secular law can create someone, that sort of born-again situation for someone. But beloved, laws do change hearts, both for good and evil. Let me give you a few examples. Right here in the book of Esther... There's no evidence that anyone at any time wanted to harm the Jews prior to Haman's law. The Jews were living as as exiles in Babylon and then Persia. That was a hard life, no doubt, but there was no sense that there was any systemic attempt to wipe them out. It's not until Haman's law is passed that we get any sense that anybody would act on that kind of evil impulse. Haman's law made that kind of hatred and persecution acceptable. It even treated murder as a positive good. Beloved, hearts were changed for the worse, weren't they? But the law can also be used to change cultures and hearts for the good. Just a few historical examples. The transatlantic slave trade didn't end because all of a sudden everybody sort of stood up and and said, I feel enlightened today. We should change this. Everything we know from the history is everybody who could profit did profit and had no intention of changing their ability to profit. Entire constitutions were written in a way that protected the ability to profit from the slave trade. So what changed? A few abolitionists managed to get a few laws passed that outlawed the wicked institution. And in time, in a country like ours, Slavery has become unthinkable. People who once thought it was good and a profitable economic arrangement have sort of moved over, most of them, to thinking that this is an unspeakable horror. That's the effect of the law. Or think of the right of women to vote. For most of U.S. history, women were denied the right to vote, and most people thought that was okay. But through the women's suffrage movement, laws were changed. And following the change in law came changes in attitudes, and belief. So that now, if anyone would walk up to you and say, hey, I don't think women should be able to vote, and you say, why? And they say, because they're women, all of us would look at them like they got three heads, wouldn't we? What changed? The law, with time, changed the culture, changed the heart. Or think of child labor laws. For a long time, children could be put to work for long hours in very dangerous situations for very little pay. It's just a source of cheap labor. And at a certain point, some persons worked really hard to change child labor laws. Now we have child labor laws that prevent children from being put to work or forced to work before a certain age and, 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 and ensure certain protections. Now we would look at anyone who would look to try and force children into labor, as people who are acting unrighteously and wickedly, wouldn't we? The law preceded the change in minds and hearts. Don't let anybody convince you that the law is, is powerless. Whole cultures and generations are shaped by the law. We could add the Civil Rights Movement and the end of formal Jim Crow segregation to this list. Most people in this country before the Civil Rights Movement understood racial prejudice and segregation to be, quote, natural to be good for society. But following the moral persuasion and protest of the civil rights movements, the laws were changed. And most of the country was not in favor of changing the laws at the time. But the laws were changed, and and by degree, by increment, successive generation after successive generation, two really, attitudes were changed, hearts were changed, perspectives were changed. So that now what was once seen as natural and good is seen as unnatural and wrong, at least by most people. Laws do change cultures and attitudes. We need to continue changing laws so that cultures and attitudes are continued to be bent toward righteousness and justice. To use an illustration from our day and time. Prior to Roe v. Wade, very few Americans thought abortion was a good thing. And very few thought it should be legal. But after Roe, the number of abortions skyrocketed. The culture has gone from thinking that abortion is morally wrong, to the 1980s thinking that it should be safe, legal, and rare, to our most recent presidential elections with people arguing that it's actually good. What changed? The laws changed the way people thought, changed the way cultures value the unborn. Now, the number of yearly abortions, though it's down 20%, praise God, between 2011 and 2017, the numbers are still a staggering 862,000 a year. That was in 2017. Unless abortion laws are changed, The genocide of children unborn will continue. It's a systemic injustice and it must be dismantled. The the systemic injustice is a a significant significant local issue for us. This is not something happening out there, unaffecting us. According to the Guttmacher Institute, Washington, D.C., let all states, we should be a state, but that's another sermon, let all states in the highest percentage of pregnancies ending in abortion at 37%. 37% of pregnancies in the District of Columbia ending in abortion. And there's a racial or ethnic component to this as well. Of all abortions, about 60% are black and brown babies even though black and brown, black and Hispanic women are a much smaller portion, proportion of the population. Black women were three and a half times more likely to receive an abortion than white women. Now the causes of this disparity are many. Some personal, some moral, some systemic, some historical. We cannot forget that abortion comes from the eugenics movement of the 1880s to the 1940s eugenics literally means good genes or good beginnings. It was a movement designed to control and improve uh, society by controlling the sort of genetic mix in society. Now, 1880s, 1940s, we are steeped in racism as a country. So guess whose genes needed to be weeded out? Guess whose genes needed to be controlled? Guess whose genes needed to not be spread? That's why we had the wicked practice of the forced and secret sterilization of black women. That's why persons like Margaret Sanger and groups like Planned Parenthood are a part of a history of encouraging the abortion of black babies. This is why abortion is a systemic and racial injustice of the worst kind today. We need to change a number of laws in order to change the culture and the hearts of people. We need laws that provide, first of all, real support to women who are trapped in these very difficult situations. What we do know from the research is that laws that provide significant and real supports actually contribute to the decrease in actual abortions. And that's what we're interested in, in actual abortions, not winning the culture war. But alongside that, we need laws that also change the the sense that this is a good thing to do, that this is a right thing to do. We need laws that make abortion as unthinkable as slavery, as unthinkable as Jim Crow segregation, for it is no less a systemic injustice as all the other things that we have talked about this morning. Now, let me end this application in this point about rewriting laws with a reminder Beneath all the laws and beneath all the statistics are hundreds of thousands of actual persons. There's another reason why we don't want to get drugged into the culture war and take a culture war orientation to this. Because we're talking about persons made in God's image. The mother who's carrying the child, the father who impregnated her, the baby that's in the womb, every one of them made in God's image. And every one of them having a profound human experience. We must not get so caught up in the the secular and the cultural debates about secular laws that we cease ourselves to be profoundly human. We cannot get so caught up in the argument that we fail to love our neighbors. So how we talk to the individual about these things I want to suggest to you it needs to be radically different from how you hear me talking about it now as a preacher or how we hear the newscasters talking about it in, in sort of debates about these things. The way we talk about these things with our neighbor across the dining room table must be filled with hope and the promises of a loving God to a weary, confused, and scared world. If you're here and considering an abortion, we want you to know that that's not your only option. And we want you to know it's not your best option. And we want you to know that you're not alone. As a church community, we will stand with you. And we want to stand with you not just until you give birth to the baby. We want to stand with you until you see the baby graduate high school and go to college and get a job, and start a family of their own. We're not just offering you a sermon. We're offering you a community. We're not just offering you what can feel like the self-righteous pronouncement of judgmental Christians. We don't mean to be that. We're offering you what we think and what we know from the Bible is the word of life, a way to flourish, a way to be well with the help and the company of other people, many of us who have been there. So if you're here this morning and you're considering an abortion, we want you to consider life. We want you to consider life in community. And we want you, if you're willing, to allow us to help you in any way that we can to give birth to this child and to raise this child to adulthood, into a flourishing life. We'd stay back all day to talk with you about this if you would let us. As a person, you matter more to us than the debate. And as a person, your baby matters more to us than the laws and the debate. We care about those things, but we care about you more. And if you're here this morning and you've already had an abortion, And I'm speaking here not just to women, but I'm speaking here to any of the men who conveniently left the woman hanging during that difficult time. The the single greatest predictor of whether or not a woman will carry a baby to turn is whether or not the man is actually supportive and involved. And you all know, like I know, that a lot of men prove themselves not to be men at precisely this point in time and they duck out on the responsibility. So I, in that sense, I think abortion is a man's problem, not just a woman's problem. And so I want to speak to us, if, if we have already had an abortion or we've not shown up for someone who has had an abortion, we want you to know that God's love, God's mercy, God's kindness, and God's help is for you too. You have not disqualified yourself from God's love. You have not put yourself beyond the reach of God's care and concern. Sometimes there's, there's great shame in our sin, various kinds of sin. And all of us have committed great sin. But as great as our sin is, God is much greater. His grace is much greater. His love is much greater. His kindness is much greater. His forgiveness is much greater. There is more grace in God's baby finger than there is sin in our entire lifetime. Satan would whisper to you that that thing, whatever that thing is, whether it's abortion or something else, he would whisper to you that that thing is so bad that God won't have nothing to do with you. And I think it's so bad that you should always hang your head in shame and never come to God. Listen, beloved, the best prayers in the Bible are offered by people who were so ashamed they could not lift their face to heaven, and they just cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Bible says that those are the people who went home justified, not the religious folks who were praying next to them saying, thank God I ain't like this sinner. Oh, if you've got shame because of your sin, if you've got regret because of your sin, if your head is hung low because of your sin, if you spend much of your waking life and much of your waking energy hiding from other people, not letting them know who you really are because of your sin, I got news for you. God already knows, and God loves you anyway. And he's given you perfect proof of his love. And you say, how was that? He took the one unique son that he had, whom he loved before the worlds began, and he sent them into this world that you and I live in with all of its brokenness. And he said to that son, dress in their human flesh. Live a perfect life in their place. Die For their sin. And I will raise you up three days later to prove that your death on the cross paid for their sin and that I am satisfied with your sacrifice and to prove to them that I love them, that I love them in such a way that my son, our Savior, would take all of God's punishment for all of our sin. So, beloved, if you're here this morning, and you have committed whatever sin, however much shame and regret it produces. Know that there is a God who loves you, who will love you through it, who will love you out of it, who will lift your head and make his face to shine upon your face in full acceptance and full love. It, it will be so radical in acceptance that the Bible says it will be like being born again having an entirely new life. This is what we offer you through the gospel. This is what God offers you through his son. New life and a new community and a new family where we grow together in God's love. If you'd like to know more about that, please talk with any of us after the service. We love to just listen to you, not preach to you. We love to get to know you. And we love to answer your questions about this Jesus who proves God's love and welcomes sinners such as me. This just brings us to our, amen. This brings us to our final point, beloved. There is not only replacement and repair. There's not only rewriting or revoking, but there is also rejoicing and revival. That's what we see in verses 15 to 17. Listen, beloved, the the work of correcting systemic injustice isn't over until there's rejoicing and revival. Notice verse 15, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king. You can see him almost standing up straight. Went out from the presence of the king. The last time we saw him, he was dressed in sackcloth and ashes, mourning at the king's gate, not able to come into his presence. But now Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a golden crown, great golden crown, and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Look with me in verse 17, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Beloved, righteousness exalts a nation, and the righteous rejoice when they see justice prevail. The Jews party all over the empire. Mordecai has been raised up. His law has been circulated. He has been honored and promoted, and with him, all the Jewish people. They knew their fortunes and their futures were changed, and they rejoiced. This might be a good place to answer another question or objection that I sometimes hear from people who oppose talk of justice. They ask, When will it be enough? How will we know that we have done enough to correct this historical injustice or to correct this oppression? My answer, based on this text, is it will be enough when the victims of oppression and mistreatment and, 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 and subjugation rejoice in the streets. That's when you know you've done enough is when the people who were crushed are now lifted. You know you've done enough when the people who were burdened with all kinds of of shame and degradation and mistreatment are actually in the streets in royal robes rejoicing and praising God and delighting in this new dawn of justice. That's when it will be enough. It's not the ones who have committed the oppression or inherited a system that committed the oppression who gets to decide that's enough. What is that? What is that but the continuance of a slave master mentality? I get to afflict you and then maybe relieve you until I'm done with it. No, 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 no. In God's kingdom, in God's deliverance, the, 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 the relief should be so full that the people who were once pressed down are bursting forth in joy and gladness. One of the signs, the sure signs, that an unjust system has been dismantled is the rejoicing of the oppressed in the streets of the city. Psalm 35, 27 says, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. That's the praise we want to hear in the streets. That's why we pursue justice. We pursue it for rejoicing, but we also pursue it, beloved, for revival. From a Christian perspective, what we hope for most It's not just the correction of systems, but what we hope for most is the revival of spirits. That's what we see in this paragraph, verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. These are the people who were in darkness and sadness and sorrow and shame, and all of that's been reversed now. And not just for the Jews, but notice verse 17, the second half, and many from the peoples of the country, these are people who are not Jews, declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And I don't think he means fear like just trembling that the Jews are going to attack them because they didn't have that legal right. I think he means a kind of reverence, a kind of recognition that God is among his people, that God has delivered his people, that that God is really God, that that God is mighty, that that God lives among the oppressed, and he lifts them up in righteousness. And people saw that. People saw the the working of God to produce justice, and they said, that God I want to know. You see, conversion to Judaism... The spirit of the Jews were revived in verse 16. The souls of the non-Jews were revived in verse 17. Oh, that God would send us revival. When the righteousness of God is seen, then rejoicing and revival are oftentimes the fruit of it. And this is our great interest as God's people. This is our great hope as we wait for the coming of his kingdom. Consider as we end Esther chapter 8, consider it a perfect picture of the kingdom that's to come. Consider what happens in this chapter. A king who goes from being unrighteous in the earlier chapters, supporting righteousness now. A kingdom where there is only Injustice in the earlier chapters, becoming a kingdom where righteousness and justice are the law of the land. A people who, are, who were once crying outside the palace in sackcloth and ashes and fearing for their lives around the empire. A people now dressed in white robes and wearing crowns. A people, in verse 17, who did not know the God of the Jews. Now from every nation, 127 provinces, worshiping with joy the God of righteousness. And this is just a vague picture of that coming kingdom. When Christ returns, when he comes, not sending messengers on royal horses, but riding a royal stallion himself. When he comes with all of his servants dressed in white, symbolizing the righteousness of the saints. When he comes now with a sword of truth out of his mouth, which is the word of God. And he rules with a a scepter, crushing the wicked and extending the scepter in blessing to all those who come in faith. When he establishes his kingdom at his throne, which are built on righteousness, a kingdom in which there is no sin, there is no evil, there is no murder, there is no injustice, where God himself will wipe every tear from every eye. Where all of our enemies are finally and forever defeated and vanquished. No devil to harass, no death to threaten, no world to seduce in that place, there's not even a sun because God and the lamb will be the light of that place. And there's not even a night because there will always be the seeing of his glory. In that place where people don't have to rejoice because they have been relieved, they will rejoice because they only know joy. His kingdom is coming. His kingdom is perfect. His people are ready. Are you one of his people? Are you ready for his coming? Do you long for this kingdom? I pray and hope you do because in that kingdom, there are no unjust systems. It's just only perfection. And in that kingdom, We will know his perfect love, his perfect joy, his perfect acceptance, as we live a perfect eternal life with him. I don't know how much more God can offer us this morning than a whole kingdom with him. I pray that we all receive it and rejoice in it, and we are revived from it. Let's pray together. Lord, our prayer is short this morning. It is, as we said earlier, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord. Establish your kingdom. Establish perfect righteousness. Bring us into the fullness of your glory and the fullness of your love. A weary world awaits. Come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.